What's up, everyone? Happy Friday night. Tonight, I'm with the RC Apologist, the Reformed Christian Apologist. Today, we're going to be talking a little bit about understanding presuppositional apologetics. Um, he's obviously a precept. I'm not really sure where I'm at yet. I'm just trying to learn, and hopefully, you guys are going to learn something, too, from this. So, how's it going, man? Yeah, it's going pretty good, pretty good on this uh, Friday night. Or Friday evening, whatever it is in y'all's time. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so get started. We'll get started here a little bit with this. Um, can you tell me a little bit, kind of about like you, who you are, your testimony, um, kind of what got you into apologetics, things like that. Mm -hmm. So regarding my testimony, um, I was, you know, person that was in what I would call default Christianity or name tag Christianity. That is, that I grew up uh, because of my own thinking and my own ideas that you know. Christianity is just this thing you wear and, and say that what you believe. And that's pretty much all it is to it regarding what Christianity is. But then the more I started to, you know, encounter certain things, I was being tested for sure. And then I eventually, uh, during a time where I was becoming a bit of a perfectionist, I heard what the actual gospel is since I thought Jesus was just this uh, sinless man and that we should just be like him and that he was nothing more than just a sinless man. Um, but then I was told that the gospel is, you know, that Jesus died on the cross so that uh, through what he has done, we would be forgiven of our sins, that he has atoned for our sins. And this shook my ideas because I believed in no forgiveness. I thought that Jesus wouldn't forgive people, that he was someone that if I would have traveled back in time, I would have been able to save him and try to stop that. But then I realized what that would have prevented. And that even then, when I looked in the Bible, there was someone that was like that. Peter tried to rescue Jesus and he refused the help because what he was trying to do was to redeem us of our sins by dying on the cross. And so this shook my foundation. I then went, started looking into this and I started studying more. And then eventually uh, what I could only describe as like this pure coldness as eyes my eyes were just like flooding with uh, tears down my, down my cheeks. And I even saw where the spots were and I tried to check to see if, you know, they're uh, real or not. And what do you know? They were wet uh, two particular spots that were there where I was standing. And then next thing I know, that's when I gave my life over to Christ um, that day. So that was my testimony. And then in regards to apologetics, you know, I've those questions I got when I was in high school, I had to look more into some of this stuff. And, you know, that's what I just did. I just kept looking into it. I started doing uh, the research and I found this thing called apologetics. And I'm like, okay, I got to look into it because I'm about to head into college. So got to know how to defend your faith there because that's usually when a lot of people start to lose their faith is doing there. And you hear a lot of things that just don't make any sense. And so I started hearing about people like Inspiring Philosophy and other uh, YouTube apologists. And I sort of started to learn from them and adopt some of these kinds of principles on how it is to defend the faith. And of course, fast forward a few more years and here we are today with me still being an apologist and still being a Christian ever since 2013. Hmm. Appreciate it, man. Um just so you guys know, I forgot to put this in the beginning, but we'll be doing a little bit of Q&A at the end. Uh, if you guys have questions, you can just drop those in the chat. But um, So obviously your name is Reformed Christian Apologetics. So obviously we're going to talk about precept, 
and I'm saying obviously a lot, but um, what does it mean for you to be reformed? Well, that depends on who you ask for that. Regarding reformed, in the general sense, it refers to the reformation. And so some people can just identify themselves as reformed and refer to it just like, you know, you could be a Lutheran and be reformed, it'd be a, uh, a Baptist and be reformed. Uh, you know, there's all these kinds of things, but then you have what mostly you think about when you hear it these days, and that is the Calvinistic sense. Um, that is that, you know, during the, you have the thought of Jean Calvin um, in France during the Protestant Reformation. And then this theology sort of gets uh, brought up and continued on in its beliefs over the years. And of course you have more popular people like uh, R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur, um, and all these others. And especially where it's getting to where I'm at now with this apologetic that we're discussing, presuppositional apologetics is pretty much a apologetic methodology rooted in the reformed tradition. Because if you go to um, the person who has, you know, started talking about this kind of stuff, and that was uh, Cornelius Van Til, he was a uh, uh, he was a Calvinist. He was of uh, Dutch descent, if I'm not mistaken, and he um, would create this methodology, which is rooted in what he tried to define it as a Christian, not only just a strict Christian um, theology, meaning the apologetic methodology can only work from the Christian worldview. It cannot work from Islamic ideas. It cannot work in um, the cultic ideas of uh, fake Christianities. It can only work within the Christian uh, framework. And not only that, that he said that this would refer to the reform thing because in his articles where he would choose use the analogies like uh, Mr. White, Mr. Black, and then Mr. Brown, he would, if I'm not mistaken, Mr. Brown, uh, in his essays on that was the uh, the Catholic or the Arminian um, apologist. And he would say that they, they would find some errors and that theirs wouldn't be fit with presuppositional apologetics. And so what we're seeing from this is that it's ultimately a reformed Calvinistic sense. And essentially that's what we're seeing from reform these days. And when people are identifying as reformed in apologetics or theology, that sort of kind of gives you these days what what they mean by that. Um, so in a general sense, just like the Protestant, but in the specific sense, and especially today when someone says reformed on their profile or something, they're usually meaning that they're of the Calvinistic uh, belief. All right. Um, so obviously today we're talking about precept. So mm -hmm. just a broad question here, just to start things off, kind of define our terms. What is presuppositional apologetics? Hmm. And that's a good question there. Uh, presuppositional apologetics, um, to quote uh, John Frame in his uh, article on the uh, subject, um, since he himself is a presuppositionalist, says that, quote, may be understood in the light of a distinction common in epistemology or theory of knowledge in any factual inquiry. It is important to distinguish between the ideas we have prior to the inquiry and those we gain in the course of the inquiry. But... I haven't prepared much for that particular quote, so it could get long there, but essentially to try to get to it, to focus on what it is in presuppositionalism. It is a it, it is a, essentially a method of argumentation that says that one can't account for reality. 
or the preconditions of intelligibility, as is usually said by Bonson several times in his works, as well as Van Til, that you can't account for certain things. You can't account for moral values. You cannot account for the laws of logic. You cannot account um, for several things in terms of how we justify what we see in reality. We cannot justify for what we're you know, even doing without presupposing uh, the God of the Bible. And that's hence why uh, you'll normally hear the argument from, or the quote from Van Til where it's basically the only proof for the existence of God is that without God, you couldn't prove anything. So in other words, it's trying to say that, you know, in the atheistic worldview, one cannot account for objective moral value since there is no objective moral uh, lawgiver to hold this as a universal uh, principle. Then you have the uh, people who, uh, sorry about that there, my ear, earphone just kind of went off there. Yeah, um, so you have the objective moral values, but then there's the laws of logic. How can you account for the fact that universally and for all times that the law of non-contradiction still applies or any of these other different laws? And then there's the uniformity of nature. In the atheistic worldview that does not account for miracles or any of these other sorts of things, um, how then can you account for the consistency in nature, for example, like we have a, I have a cup in my hand right about now, in case anyone wanted to know if there was something there. <laughs> um, if I were to drop it, and there's that, how can I know that in about five minutes from now, and if atheism is true, if I drop it, how do I know it's gonna just do the same thing as being dropped and make that contact? Someone could say that it's, you know, uh, past experiences, but this is the problem of induction that even uh, philosophers like Bertrand Russell noted is that this will only tell you of past futures, not future futures. And so uh, if atheism is true and there's no God that sustains the universe, there is no certainty of this sort of stuff. It's very possible then um, that we have no certainty of this. And it could be that if I were to drop this, maybe it's floating along with my body um, in the next five minutes. And so there is no accountability for certainty regarding the uniformity of nature. But when you have the God of the Bible, which the Bible states that God is the creator of all things and even says that God sustains the universe. And it is Christ who has created all things and, and holds all things together. We can then see and have the justification for why we affirm a sort of uh, uniformity at that point. But ultimately, the argument is that apart from the knowledge of God, apart from God, you cannot account or justify uh, the ideas that you hold to. So therefore, what presuppositional apologetics is, is the argument that the Christian worldview, the Christian religion, is the only consistent religion, only consistent belief, and the only consistent worldview which conforms to reality. Not atheism, not Islam, not Mormonism, not Buddhism, but Christianity. Okay. Um, so, appreciate you kind of just laying that out here. Uh, mm -hmm. So, now I'm going to just kind of go through some questions here kind of about it. Uh, first thing that came to my mind is you're talking about how um, only really through a Christian worldview that we can ground reality. What about, let's say, like an Islamic worldview 
worldview, you know, Islam, Islam <laughs> is theism in the same way, in a similar way as Christianity being theism. So why, why Christianity? Why not Islam? So regarding the two religions? Yeah, like why, why is Christianity the only way to um, understand reality? Well, in terms of the particular uh, worldview relations, and this is what's even interesting is because I ended up hearing a sort of shared idea about this from some of the more recent uh, critics of it. Like there was uh, Cameron from uh, Capturing Christianity along with Richard Howe, Dr. Richard Howe that was on there, and they raised this objection. And then others likewise would sort of uh, kind of bring this objection up. Um, and so the answer to that question is that if you were to test the worldview, in other words, the uh, twofold uh, apologetic methodology that is uh, described by Greg Bonson in his book, uh, in Proverbs, there is answer a fool according to his folly, and then there's answer not a fool according to his folly. So you have these two different things. And some people would say, well, wait a minute there. It looks like you have yourself a contradiction. How can these be true? Um, and the way to answer that is that it's a two-step approach, as Bonson puts it. The first step is answer not a fool according to his folly, lest thou also be like unto him. So meaning if we're to compare this and use this approach in Islam, don't answer a fool or in this case, just a non-Christian, according to his notions of Islam, because Islam will say some bizarre things in his worldview. Um, and trust me, if you want to get more on what exactly Islam says, we can certainly get to that in the uh, argument. But if you then go with the other part of it, which says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. In other words, Answer him according to his folly, lest he thinks himself to be wise. And essentially, is, and while he says he's not a presuppositionalist, this is sort of the same thing you see in the book Tactics by Greg Kokel, where he basically points as the test drive um, perspective of apologetics, is that you take their worldview for a test drive to see it holds up any weight. And if you do that with Islam, okay, let's adopt your worldview for a second and see how far it can even get us. And according to the idea of Islam, um, you have Islam trying to identify itself with Tawhid, with monotheism in the Unitarian sense, which I don't believe, um, since I'm affirming more so the idea of, like John Frame and the others point out, they... Uh, personal absolute being is required and this is seen in the personal and absolute behavior of the triune god and what he's capable of doing but not only do you not see that within a lack of the triunity in the allah of the quran but that he is a uh, doesn't have says he doesn't have children doesn't want have a relationship with his creation according to uh, the Quran. In fact, even the Quran teaches a sort of arbitrary fatalism and predestination of people, such as what can be seen in uh, Surah 9, Ayah 51, Sahih Muslim, uh, Book 33, Number 6406. I say that just in case someone has a particular number, because Hadith are very complicated to explore. Um, so they have a fatalistic notion of predestination versus the biblical notion of what predestination is 
So pretty much it's just whatever's written on the pen uh, will happen. There is no changing um, what can be written on the pen. If it happens, it happens. There is no personal involvement. This was happened from the beginning and he's not going to interact with people in bringing about these particular things. So this would uh, sort of reduce the moral absolutes at this point uh, regarding who uh, this Allah is, as well as the logical problem of the fact that if he's not personal, then how can he be giving these moral absolutes to people, really? And then there's the laws of logic, which you see Allah contradict himself quite often, as well as Muhammad, because you'll see that there's the idea of the corruption of the scriptures or the corruption of the Torah. Can't prove any of that, of course. And then, of course, at the same time, we'll straight up say, you know, rely on the Torah. Go to the Jews and Christians. Then let them, you know, tell you what their scriptures say. So you have these things. So what do we do? Do we view these things as corrupted and no longer valid? Or do we still hold some validity? So there's things within the Quran and even in the Hadith that mentions some things. And plus there's the issue about a contradiction of history. The Quran says in Surah 4, 157, that Jesus uh, is not crucified, but that it's a myth. It was made to appear such, and even tries to go as far to deny the skeptics of this claim by saying those who argue for the crucifixion um, are deceived and uh, know no better. Um, and then tries to say, for surely he was not crucified. It tries to say like the second time, surely, guys, Jesus wasn't crucified, nothing to see here. Um, so when you have the issue that Jesus has been crucified, this is a state, state of fact, but Islam denies this, and supposedly the Quran is the direct words of Allah written from the eternal tablets in heaven, why then, why is this then the religion to go to if it's illogical and contradicts history? I say then the Christian worldview, which does account for the crucifixion and even the resurrection of Jesus, this is what does account for the reality. This is what accounts for history. It is not Islam and the logical problems in there for even uh, Greg Bonson himself wrote about this a while back when some people tried to actually make that claim as well. There's the um, Islamic notion of uh, trying to remember what exactly the name of it is, but it's basically where it tries to say that, you know, uh, Allah is uh, too uh, transcendent for us to comprehend that he is, this is called Tanzi um, and in regards to Surah 42, I 11 that teaches this, that it's such an extreme fashion that no human language from experience can positively and appropriately describe who Allah is. But yet, the Quran does just that. So if the doctrine is that you can't comprehend or fathom or describe using human languages or experience who Allah is, then why are you doing it in the first place? I mean, it's like, we're, don't do this, but we will do it. It makes no sense. And thus... Islam has a contradiction. But in the Christian worldview, there is no contradiction regarding how it can account for logic, how it can account for morality, how it can account for how we know things. Islam cannot. Okay. Uh, how would you respond? So I've heard this in response to kind of like the idea that 
only in a Christian theism can you ground, like understand reality. Um, how would you respond to an atheist that would say that we, um, as a society have landed, let's say a man on the moon. So we obviously, we have enough understanding of this earth of reality to land a man on the moon. So we should, we have enough. So the atheist would then argue that we have enough understanding to ground reality, understand reality without a God. Mm -hmm. All right. So, all right. So repeat that again. Sorry about that. Just want to no, make sure good. I get that. So how would you respond to, let's say an atheist that says that, we know that we can believe that we can ground reality because let's say we've because because we can interact with reality. So let's say we've landed a man on the moon. So obviously we can understand the laws of physics to get the rocket off the earth and all those things. So if we, if we can understand that, then we can understand reality and there's no need to presuppose a God to understand mm -hmm. everything. So I'm, um, I'm not mistaken. So the question being that is that if we were to just, you know, drop something or have past experience that sort of can account for things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, as I said earlier, that that doesn't solve the problem. I think this is what uh, people like uh, Hume and uh, Bertrand Russell, if I'm not mistaken from what I had read in references was able to point out is that this is called the problem of induction and that all that you're getting at this point is past, uh, uh, past futures being predicted to you about this, meaning in those particular circumstances, given those particular conditions, but if you were to try to do something like that, there could be a chance that it doesn't turn out the same exact way. And, you know, there's actually an example that was trying to be given about that because someone said, uh, if I drop my keys, I 100% guarantee uh, without a doubt um, that they're going to fall to the ground and touch the ground. And he's like, okay, then I will certainly uh, like to see you try. And someone does that. And then someone from the audience just runs up and grabs the keys before they could even touch the ground. And so that disproved the claim that said of his 100% certainty that he knew the keys were going to fall to the ground as soon as he was going to drop them. He had no idea about a man coming to just take them. And that's only in light of those particular factors. Who knows? Maybe there's a factor at that point, since there is no God involved, what could happen at that point that causes gravity to just cease at that point and we just fly away. So we have these things we can observe, but they can only tell you of a certain set of conditions that you have experienced. And by using that, you can then predict the future, but it won't do it every single time with a certainty, especially in light of the fact that you don't uh, believe in the sustainer of the universe and you don't believe in a universal sustainer. And if someone does say they believe there is something that is eternal and is universal that sustains the world, then they're just fulfilling Romans chapter one, where it talks about that all men know God exists because of the wrath of God revealed to people that everything that's known about God's made manifest to them so that they are without excuse. And then verse 21, for they, for though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling man, mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. And while this doesn't have to just be in the polytheistic context, there are people today that will say that they affirm this certain object or principle and they give it divine 
attributes, the attributes that only ascribe to God. It's like singularity regarding the issue of how did life begin? They describe it and say that it's eternal and all these other sorts of things. And this means if you do the logical conclusion and you're starting from the Christian worldview, this person knows God exists, but they have decided to suppress that truth and change that image into being singularity, meaning the God that they view in their life is singularity and not Yahweh. So sure, you can say by past experiences, like by past experiences, I could drop this and it'll fall to the ground. But if atheism were true, I couldn't have that certainty because you know that's only telling us past futures and there could be future futures where there's some condition that I'm not aware of comes up and boom, I'm starting to fly along with the cup. But because I know what God's word says and God keeps his promises, if it says he's the sustainer of all things, he's the sustainer of the cup that falls. Oh, you're uh, you're muted. My bad. I always forget <laughs> when I put it on mute and then I don't um, unmute it. But anyways, um, kind of going off of that, um, mm -hmm. totally lost my thought because I had to put myself off of mute. But here's my thought. What would you say if someone says i believe that the laws of physics are constant they aren't mm -hmm. gonna change um they haven't changed in my experience i believe they're not going to change so there's no need to presuppose any sort of god mm -hmm. well they can say that they have a presupp that they have that experience but again i they have to then realize that what we're talking about is again past experience but it won't always determine the future in fact What's even crazier is that part of this was even uh, taught to me uh, through the Matrix uh, video game that came out, uh, not the one that had Neo or anything like that. Had, uh, Ghost and Naomi as the characters you played as, and Ghost uh, would always check his guns even when he was in these uh, in the program. And the reason why, according to him, is that uh, that you never know what's going to happen, and of course, try to go with it in a sort of godless uh, universe idea to them. And he basically said, you never know, uh, you could reload and drop your uh, magazine and it'll fall to the ground, but the next thing you know, it might float to the ceiling. And the words were on the final, past experiences can never fully determine the future, um, was the quote. And I agree with that because like we pointed out with the one person, he said, past experience, I dropped the keys and it'll completely uh, just drop. And for certain, no nothing's going to prevent that. But a person came, a factor that he didn't consider and wouldn't been able to consider, it just came up and just took the keys. Well, of course, gave it back. And then there's the issue about, you know, the gravity thing. If atheism is true, there is no God, there is no sustainer. Um, then eventually you have to leave room for the possibility that certain things will happen that you cannot be certain about. And thus leaves the problem of induction that even people like Bertrand Russell said was problematic for the atheist at that point because they couldn't account for these things. But in the Christian worldview, we could account for it because we affirm that there is a God. And while indeed miracles are possible, we can at least account for it at that point, because in that point, if it happens, then there's nothing really that the atheist can say that says, okay, well, uh, 
let's see. I can't say it's God. What are we? What are, what are we gonna? What are we gonna do with this? Just straight up random phenomenon of us floating to the ground, or just this completely violating past experiences that help determine the future, even though that's not true. But so you say you have these kinds of issues here, and it's unfortunate, but that's what we're essentially dealing with when it comes to this is that with Christianity, it can account for these things. Atheism cannot because all it can account for is just everything in the past only, you know, tells us of the past futures in those conditions that we're familiar with, but if conditions we're not familiar with, you can't predict that based off of past experiences that aren't in that category of, of similarity. All right, so let's just move on here to some more different objections. So how would you respond to the idea that presuppositional apologetics is basically circular reasoning? So, for mm -hmm. example, um, the Bible is God's word because in the Bible it says it's God's word. Right. And to me, that's not the argument from the presuppositionalist because this would be a vicious circular reasoning. And that is a uh, something that we don't... Uh, want to do because indeed that is what's uh, considered very problematic and can lead to some issues. And in fact, that's even what uh, Van Til himself tried to point out is that, and other philosophers do the same thing in pointing out that there's a difference between a vicious uh, circular reasoning and then the uh, broad uh, circular reasoning. Uh, vicious circular reasoning is essentially, uh, the Bible is true because the Bible says it's true. Or in another analogy, the White House is white because the White House is white. You know, these are ideas of vicious circular reasoning because essentially the conclusion, you only have one premise and then the conclusion follows afterwards. And the, and the premise and the conclusion are completely identical. But if you're going to use the, the circular uh, reasoning, there has to at least be a longer way of using it. So for in the White House example... Um, you have, okay, take a look at the, the, someone says, prove that the White House is white. Okay, we start with the White House. We're presupposing the reliability of looking at it and observing it, but we can and look at the colors thereof, examine it, determine the kind of paint that is used, and then make that conclusion that indeed it is white. Likewise, for the Bible being the word of God, the Bible is the word of God, because of its self-attestation and that it fulfills uh, certain prophecies regarding the Messiah. And so you then can point out that it does prove these things, and this then leads to premise one, premise two, premise three, premise four, and all these other different things, then you have a more laid out version of it. And that in and of itself is not fallacious. Vicious circularity, on the other hand, that is what is fallacious. Because even as a, there's a philosopher by the name of William Alston. Uh, if you've, I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, uh, William Alston. I'm not. He's a philosopher, and the only time I've heard of him really is through reading Michael J. Kruger's uh, work on the canon. And in that, he discusses, or he quotes uh, Alston, in which I believe it is in uh, the book Knowledge of God, or, or in his article, Knowledge of God in Faith, Reason, and Skepticism. Um, and 
In there, he says, there is no escape from the epistemic circularity in the assessment of our fundamental sources of belief. For this the case, we have atheists that would engage in circular reasoning. We have Muslims that would engage in circular reasoning. In fact, here's a very idea to show that we're engaging in circular reasoning right now. Um, do you believe that um, your sense perception of your eyes, your vision, is valid? Yes. All right. How could you prove that? I don't know. Just the way I can see my eyes, it looks like I can interact with reality through my eyes, I would say. So you're presupposing the validity of your vision in order to test the validity of your vision, correct? Correct. Correct. And that's not in itself fallacious because when you're testing it, it's more than just simply seeing you can see. You have to test it by observing certain things. And thus, when we do that, we're engaging in circular reasoning to test something. But at the same time, it's more laid out and it's not just a childish, viciously circular uh, reasoning. That was the main thing I had an objection towards presuppositional apologetics. But once I started realizing the philosophical approach at this on circular reasoning and that everyone is guilty of circular reasoning to some degree, that removes the problem once you realize there are distinctions between the vicious circular reasoning and the broader circular reasoning. Okay, so how would you respond uh, another counter-argument here that presuppositional apologetics is really just dogmatic because mm -hmm. a few things here. One, they say you're enforcing an absolute. You're saying that in your worldview, I believe at least, if I'm mistaken please tell me i'm wrong but mm -hmm. you believe that everyone is in a way borrowing from your worldview because they believe they can understand reality yeah so, and i believe that is the case so is it dogmatic because you're enforcing some sort of absolute on everybody that they are using your worldview well in a sense i mean it's not so that it's uh me enforcing this that's god that has enforced it and that this is just reality this is just true I mean, that's just the prop. That's just the issue that we have to deal with. Because if the fact of the matter is that you know people are borrowing from the Christian worldview to try to substantiate their ideas and their beliefs, and God exists, then this is something that's true regardless of your opinion. And I could care less what you say if you're saying like that. This is oh dogmatic. I mean, so does that mean we're gonna say it's dogmatic to lock people up in jail because they? broke a law that we're enforcing our ideas of what's right or wrong by the law because that's what ultimately the argument was when i tried to bring up this to an atheist in arkansas is that um you know he was saying that you can't tell people they're wrong and you're right let truth be subjective just say that that's right for me and that someone else has their own view of right and wrong and so then i asked about rape okay you know regarding rape is that right or wrong and he's like well to the rapist it's not wrong and i'm like okay so if you're saying it's wrong to force my ideas of what's right or wrong then you're saying it is very is wrong for the person for the for the law to say what you're doing is wrong and lock him up we should let the rapist go and he said he was about to say yes, but then realizing the absurdity of his statement and his worldview, he had to say no 
and then change the topic saying what that's completely different because this only applies to Christianity. This doesn't apply to something else. And you realize he has committed the fallacy of double standards at that point because he'll hold for one thing, uh, one standard for, you know, us Christians telling people that they're wrong on certain things and that we're right in certain things. But when it comes to that same standard for uh, secular ideas, oh, no, 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 we don't, we can't be, we have to be inconsistent there. It doesn't make sense. And this shows that it is a fallacious worldview because in Christianity, we can say rape is wrong. Just like in that case, we can say rape is wrong and that unbelief is wrong. That sin is wrong. So, what is consistent and logically uniform and that would be Christianity and that is ultimately the approach presuppositional apologetics aims to give that if you don't start with the Christian worldview your worldview and your train of thought is going to be foolish because that's the thing he'll say you know to the rapist that's not wrong and all that kind of stuff and have these thoughts but in reality he has no choice but to object and say this is wrong people say that is wrong not in my opinion, that's wrong. Notice every time that if you ever see someone who identifies as a subjective moralist kind of person and they say that's wrong without saying, in my opinion, that's wrong, you automatically see they are not living up to what their own statements suggest. All right. Um, let's go to the next counter argument here. Then, uh, what about the idea that presuppositional apologetics prevents us um, from having common ground with fellow believers. So it's kind mm -hmm. of a similar question, but with Christians now. Um, yeah. So you're, you would obviously have to probably agree here again, that class, like a classical apologist is kind of borrowing from your worldview when they're making uh, their argument. So, is, mm -hmm. so how would you respond to something like this? Well, I would say uh, there is a yes, we have common ground and a yes. And I know that we don't have common ground. Um, because ultimately, because Van Til was kind of like both ways with it, because in one article or one letter that he sent, he says that believers and unbelievers do not share common ground in the sense that they don't have the same worldview or presuppositions. One person has unbelief. The other has Christian uh, worldview. So they have atheism, you know, Islam, Christianity, totally different worldviews. They're not the same ground. But there is common ground, and this is actually one of the things about um, that has kind of been stated with uh, Greg Bonson in his book uh, on the matter is that he raises he answers an objection that's against um, uh, that's against presuppositional apologetics by saying, "Well, you're saying that uh, unbelievers have nothing in common with uh, Christians." And he says that's not true at all. Unbelievers do have things in common. We both have the ability to reason. We're both made in the image of God. We both uh, care for life. We both have these things. The only difference is, hence going back to what Ventil had said earlier in one distinction, is that one says that they start with the presupposition of God, of the Christian God, and the other is in rebellion and against it. And so that's the problem is that the Christian remains consistent, but the atheist remains inconsistent and has to borrow from 
the Christian worldview in order to try to substantiate and keep their shaky tower, shaky foundation, and help keep it from falling apart. And it works because they're having to adopt Christian uh, principles and the Christian worldview in order to even hold their claim up. For if they weren't to use any Christian principles or Christian worldview ideas at all, it would just crumble into the utter oblivion. All right. So next objection here. Um, just keep flying through those. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> you're doing a great job. I appreciate it. Uh, what about the objection that presuppositional apologetics is really just dodging the burden of proof that you're just saying <laughs> you're, you're borrowing from my worldview or no, sorry. I just totally butchered that. Um, you're saying that I'm part of your worldview, um, but you're not providing any evidence for why I am. You're just dodging the burden of proof. Mm -hmm. And certainly there are, uh, uh, people who do this. Uh, I've seen presuppositionalists that just don't even bother to engage with it. And I think this is sort of dishonest. I'm on their part. I, I, and this is why in terms of uh, the presuppositional apologetics, I take more so the kind of ideas uh, from John Frame um, because with John Frame's um, particular work, what he describes it as apologetics is a, and he sort of has a same kind of similar notion that um, uh, Bonson talks about regards to Proverbs chapter 26, verse 45 is that you have apologetics in a two-step approach. But, and if you do get the apologetics, a justification for belief by uh, frame, he has several chapters dedicated to this. You essentially have apologetics as a defense. And this is when you start um, being on the defense about answering the questions. And then you have apologetics as offense, meaning then once then you have the defense, you must then provide the offense. It's sort of like if you're going into battle, you have a shield and a sword in the medieval times. You see a guy and he's about to strike you. You don't immediately uh, go striking back unless you're going to expect a cut at that point. What it is, you block and then you go in for the attack. So in the sense here, if someone brings up the objection against Christianity or against a certain idea, instead of just doing the offense and trying to just turn it around onto them, you should first defend it. So that way they don't have anything to use against you at that point, since you've answered the question. And this can be certainly seen in Greg Bonson's debate um, with uh, Edward Tabash, um, because he would ask some of the questions. And instead of just simply saying that the atheist can't prove it otherwise, he would say, you know, he would answer it from the Christian worldview. This is what happens. And this is how we can account for it. And then he's like, but then I would like to point out something to my, uh, to my opponent is that in his own worldview, while we can account for what I, for what is stated. And I've given that response, hopefully, um, Mr. Tabash cannot give you the evidence on that. And so the idea then falls back onto him since he's making a claim and all claims must require the evidence. So if I'm making a claim, I will defend it. But you, Mr. Tabash, have made a claim. So you likewise have the burden of proof and must also defend it. And I will ask you those questions when it's the Q&A time. So we, we have these sorts of things when you see his debates with Tabash, uh, uh, Gordon Stein, 
um, and all these people, because back then these were the atheists that you go against at that point during his day, that these were the people to go, go for. And he would respond to the objection and then he gets on the offense. So defense and then offense. So presuppositional apologetics isn't trying to remove the burden of proof, but that not, that not only do we have the burden of proof is also the non-Christian who has the burden of proof as well. For example, if it's the problem of evil, we have the solution to the supposed problem of evil. And that as we answer the solution, it then becomes the burden of proof for the atheist because the atheist lives in a naturalistic worldview. They do not have a God. And at that point, if we're adopting particularly the Darwinian view, not saying I'm against evolution, um, but that if one is to adopt the atheistic version where the principle of evolution at that point is to, you know, survival of the fittest, then it's, it's essentially something that means you can just let the weak die. If you survive, you're the strong and that's a good thing. But if they died, then, you know, they were weak. So you have some people that don't want to adopt that. And then you have people who don't adopt that they're left with even more inconsistencies and problems because they have to account for why they don't think that's a right philosophy. So they can't fully do that without it being their opinion or they have to borrow from the Christian worldview to even substantiate their claim. All right. Uh, this is my last question for you here uh, for everyone who's listening. Uh, you guys that are just chilling here with us tonight. If you have any questions, be sure to leave them in the live chat. We're going to go to the q and I saw at least one question. There may be a few more. Um, so drop your questions, and we'll get to those after this last question I have for RC Apologists. So we talked about this a little bit in the beginning, but what about the objection that presuppositional apologetics doesn't prove Christianity specifically? Um, the idea that, you know, with you can presuppose some sort of like theism. You can kind of say like, hey, we need some sort of like understanding of a creator to ground the universe. But it could just be, let's say, uh, we talked about Islam, mm -hmm. but let's just say deism, right. um, something else that mm -hmm. doesn't prove Christianity specifically. Right. And this is why, again, I would say that, um, and again, if you ever want to look at this from one of the champions of it, uh, look up Bonson's uh, article, and it's available online for several websites for free presuppositional reasoning with false faiths. But, but there's also the approach that's done by Keith Thompson in his essay, Failure of False Religions to Account for Human Experience, which takes an approach off his documentary, Atheists Don't Exist, but applies this method towards other religions. And one of the things that I noticed, and I even argued this with a, a guy on the internet who goes by the name of uh, Brass Wisdom, um, and he's a deist as far as uh, I'm, I'm aware of because last time that was seeming to be the thing. Um, but yes, he uh, was a deist. And I point out where the problem I had with deism is, is that deism um, fails to account for the uniformity of nature. It fails to account for moral absolutes. It fails to ultimately account for knowledge and it fails to account for human dignity because if deism is true and then you have the uniformity of nature, as far as the deistic arguments go, what you have is just a one-time creator deity, a clockmaker who doesn't continue working on it. He just makes it and then leaves it be. Um, as crude as the language is on this, this is what I essentially view as a uh, 
a uh, deadbeat god because ultimately what did you do is that you create the planet and then you leave and you never care to uh, look after it or visit it or uh, tend to it. It's just something you made and then, okay, you're off to other things in life. And that's essentially what deism does. And because of that, you have no sustaining of it. And thus the deist would likewise be dealing with the same kind of uncertainty problem the atheist has regarding the issue of miracles, since there is a denial of miracles in the supernatural worldview at that point. There is a denial um, of the sustainability because all, all you have is just this one creation uh, aspect, but who knows, maybe there's something that happens um, regarding uh, the creation that you know makes the flaw. Maybe the gravity comes loose on that part, which then leads to another problem. How do you even know that this God exists? Because he's not personal. He doesn't give any sort of revelation to help with make it himself personal. He doesn't want to interact with people. So in the fact that you have some knowledge about this, either you are this God, or there's somehow a way you have received this divine revelation about the deistic creator God, of which is either just speculation and theory without fact, or they're just inconsistent and problematic. So that seems to be where the problem of knowledge accounts for, because not only then is the, the knowledge about this particular God, but if he's not even personal, how can we account for even a basic and good epistemology at that point? Then there's moral absolutes. If all he did was create the world, he isn't creating uh, moral values. And if he did, then again, how do you know this without the knowledge of this God from a personal perspective of which deism denies a personal God. And then there's human dignity. How can we know that in this world, humans have dignity and value in the eyes of this God or in just in general? Again, this then all usually goes back to the knowledge objection that I point, keep pointing out because when someone makes a statement about who is this creator deity, They'll say things that are not found in the scriptures and it's merely the perspective of that individual's own mind. And it's uh, not how you really do things, honestly, if you're trying to defend your ideas and defend them as being logical and rational. Sweet. Um, so we have one question here. If any of you guys have questions, be sure to leave them now or forever hold your peace. But we have a question here from... I don't even know what his username is, but he says, is it dogmatic to state that all reasoning doesn't depend on the Christian God? That is the, uh, the sire is what I know him as. Uh, oh, the sire. Okay. Because the, the end's there, but I just called him the, the sire based off of what I have known of him in the past. Um, and that's actually kind of who I'm nervous about because he is uh, one person that I've known has done presuppositional apologetics and I'm just trying to make sure I'm actually trying to do somewhat okay. Because like I said, I'm still sort of new to the thing. And I guess much like there's a uh, ref resurgence of the Reformed tradition of more Calvinists coming in, there's now starting to become a resurgence of presuppositionalists these days. Um, but yes, is it dogmatic to state that all reasoning doesn't depend um, on the Christian God? And I don't know if he was saying that basically for you in light of the questions you were asking, but uh, if that was for me, um, is it dogmatic to state that all reasoning 
um, doesn't depend on the Christian God. I would say that if like pointed out that, you know, to state that uh, it doesn't depend on the Christian God, if you're going to say that for an absolute, that would again be dogmatic. So kind of points out what I was trying to say earlier is that regardless, people are going to be dogmatic. Um, so if like, you know, you say this is wrong, congratulations, you have just entered yourself into some dogma. Even if it's not on religious issues, you're still being dogmatic about certain ideas you hold to or certain statements about morality is all dogmatic. If you're going to state things absolutely and are not willing to uh, have sort of a change or desire to be corrected on it. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with you on all that there. Um, so that's all the questions we have. I appreciate you coming mm-hmm. on. Oh, what? No, no, <laughs> I, was, I was just laughing a bit. <laughs> oh, I was I like, that, that was a short. That was a short session. I mean, you're sure you don't have any other uh, things you might want to ask? Because you know, we covered a good bit of the uh, uh, topics. But if you got like any other kind of curiosities you might be having in light of what we've been talking about. I mean, I don't know. I've been learning a lot. I mean, we can keep going. I'm not on any sort of like time crunch. I'm just like, well, we have a Q&A and I had this time. And then to have the A, you got to have the Q. But there's no Qs right now. So true, true. Um, the only thing I've found that's interesting is the uh, the person that goes apologetic minds. And again, this is where I find it interesting. You have like Frank Turek who has stealing from God. And that's one of the things I find interesting about some of the apologetics these days is that they say uh, that they don't, you know, want to affirm presuppositionalism, but uh, they end up <laughs> borrowing from presuppositionalism <laughs> to make their books. <laughs> yeah. Because that's, that's essentially a presuppositional thing there and then tactics. Yeah. So what do you think about like, the current, um, so I just think, just a thought that came to mind, the current apologetics climate regarding precept. Because I think when mm-hmm. people think of like the top Christian apologists, they're going to think of like Aravi, Elise Strobel, um, yeah. Greg Kukul, people like that. And like in terms of like presuppositionalists, like probably the biggest name I can think of right off the top of my head is a James White, um, mm-hmm. a K. Scott Oliphant, people like that. So what do you think? Do you think classicalists treat precept? I mean, obviously, it's going to depend on the person. It's hard to make an assumption over a whole group. But what do you think of the current climate regarding a classicalist position on presuppositionalism? I think that the main people that even treat it fairly, in all honesty, these days has been the people over at Ligonier Ministries. Because while they're Reformed, they are classical apologists. And even... R.C. Sproul, along with several others, wrote a book on classical apologetics and wrote responses to um, uh, the presuppositionalists. And in fact, there was even a debate between R.C. Sproul and Greg Bonson. The uh, The audio is not as clear, and there is a transcript. But even then, they weren't able to comprehend some of the stuff. But there's material on there that shows their dialogue. And they were familiar and actually engaged with some of the arguments when it comes to some of these people I've seen, um, and this is why I believe the climate of apologetics recently has actually helped convince me to go to it because I decided to look into what these representation representations were and if they were accurate. And to my surprise, 
it seems that a lot of people that say this stuff don't know what they're talking about and just misrepresented. They haven't read it because like even when, because Cameron wasn't doing on Capturing Christianity, that Richard Howe thing wasn't the only time. It started again as soon as, you know, there was James White, or no, not, was it James White? Uh, no, Saiten Bruggenkate and Joshua Ramsudine. I, oh, I, yeah. I, I don't remember the guy's full name because he sounded like it was a foreign name that I wasn't familiar with. But as soon as I saw that, like, Saiten, you know, had a lot of support and was getting caught up on that uh, thing there, uh, everyone was, and this was what was disappointing to me. He's like, it's just a, you know, as you point out, it's not nothing serious. It's just to help promote things. And people like the fact that a majority of people are voting for Psy shows that uh, uh, there is a failure in the life of the church. And I'm like, seriously? But like, just dude, like, and then people decided to get on the thing and say, and uh, we have a philosopher and then we have uh, an idiot. Like you have people that just think that because someone's not a philosopher, but someone who goes out into the streets does apologetics and um, witnesses to people to get them to hear the gospel, that's somehow negative. It's philosophy conversations. Um, that And I think that's what Joshua's uh, strategy is, uh, from, if I'm not uh, mistaken from what I have heard of his work, is that it's about having the dialogue and the conversations um, and what's even interesting is that he actually, that particular guy, the only time I, when I tried to look up his name, uh, Muhammad Hijab's name came up um, regarding this whole thing. And essentially from what I, uh, what they were, were trying to say, uh, or at least how Muhammad Hijab tried to frame it, because um, he has a podcast called The, uh, the Green Room, and in it he's discussing the Trinity with him, and he comes off trying to describe as well as the comments saying uh, Joshua uh, uses mental gymnastics and uh, uh, unawarely admits the Trinity is illogical. That's essentially what these people gather from Joshua is that they seem to think that for some reason the Trinity is illogical. So it's not like you're going to expect perfection from some of these particular apologists. Sometimes you can't get to some of these people regardless of the method you take, but the position it should be, what makes presuppositionalism or classical apologetics their thing? Classical has a sort of step where it starts off neutral, but I think that's an impossibility because you are already starting with a presupposition of Christianity, regardless of what you say. And hence why I was stating that I think I was a presuppositionalist from the get-go because I was trying to argue for strictly for Christianity, even if I was identifying as a classic. And I said, if anyone just argues for a generic theism, and that's what people kept saying at that point is that, you know, we're just, we don't want to get into the details of Christianity. We're not trying to prove Christian doctrine just yet. We need to get them saved before we just start. Scott. No, you are a Christian stand by what you believe in um, and actually defend that. And unfortunately, they didn't want to from my experience of it. And that sort of seems to be the same unfortunate things I'm getting from some of these people today is that they're wanting to affirm Christianity, but they're going to change that up very quickly. Yeah. They, um, they, they want to just say generic theism. They don't want to go for the triune God. Um, 
or accept what the Bible does say about the existence of God in Romans 1 and just change the words completely. And so that's where I have the problem. And the more I studied the Bible, the more I looked into it. And in fact, that's the other thing. I didn't really get into philosophy that much either until I started reading presuppositional apologetics and realized that the only way that you can really get yourself in there, as Bonson points it out in his book on Always Ready, and that chapter is also available um, on a free article called The Tools of Apologetics, one needs to get themselves familiar with um, philosophy because that's the kind of world you're going to be engaging in and you want to make sure that they can fit the laws of logic and be consistent. If they mess up in any of the philosophical laws of logic, then that's how you know you have just took down one of the towers of their, or the foundation of their worldview and has been reduced to absurdity, as Bonson would point out. Yeah. Um, the apologist march around this stuff with Sai was interesting because oh, yeah. obviously um, – I mean, he got the he got a lot of votes because people from the reform side, especially James White, were promoting it the most. It wasn't about you know any other like oh, size mm-hmm. sucks or size amazing. Like it wasn't really. It's just you right. know, it's who's promoting it. It's not about who's the best. And I think exactly. obviously when you have people, people tend to vote for people they agree with. And when the people promoting it are people that are reformed, people that are reformed are going to get more votes. That's why you saw Jeff Durbin and James White and Ravi Zacharias who. Something really interesting here is following if you guys follow the tournament, Ravi was up against Sai in I think it was the round of 64. And Sai was ahead for like the whole poll, um, up until like a few hours left when like Cameron Bertuzzi, um, a few other guys just really pushed for Ravi. And like Ravi won like 5149. And little you know, later on, Ravi would promote the whole tournament and win it. So, you know, God could have predestined that. No, and, so. and I believe he did. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, what do you think about? Um, I don't want to criticize anyone, um, brother and sister wise in Christianity, mm-hmm. but I'm curious your thoughts on this because obviously, with the whole Karen Pertuzzi thing, he released that video. It was like, and he called it a sound refutation of truth stuff. So, um, I'm not trying to say this to criticize him because you know he's a right. brother in Christ, but. How do you, when you see that, what goes through your mind as a presuppositionalist when that's an, a brother in Christ that mm-hmm. is saying something like that? Well, if you want my particular thing, and I will say this then at that point to leave from you, while you may say you may not criticize, that's unfortunately a specialty of mine. Um, <laughs> because the issue is I found this to be straight up prideful and arrogance of him because he types a different thing. Um in the actual title um, where it's just a uh, interview with a uh, Richard uh, with a uh, Richard Howe and, but in the thumbnail itself, it then says a sound reputation. And this immediately I think was trying to be some sort of um, very uh, negative kind of thing. And then if you look at the fact, if you just Google some of the stuff, um, though necessarily wasn't for Google, it was for a very broader thing. I found that ever since he made that video, oh my goodness, the amount of responses that have been made toward it, not video, not just video. Like there's a group out there called uh, uh, centralapologetics.co.za. Uh, 
-hmm. <laughs> and it's a, a ministry that takes place in Johannesburg, South Africa. And so two uh, apologists from there in South Africa wrote a book or wrote two articles called R Richard Howe's Refutation of Presuppositional Apologetics by Arne Verster. And then, and this was even funnier to kind of play off more on that, was an, quote, unsound refutation of presuppositionalism. So he kind of plays on the words there. Um, and then I believe, if I'm not mistaken, the sire that was in the chat, he wrote a blog article responding to uh, Cameron's and Richard's uh, statements there. James White, of course, links the discussion he had with Richard Howe, where they go back and forth on the matters of apologetics and the so-called issues. Um, Eli, a uh, guest that you had on, he wrote, he made a 30 minute video responding to the whole thing. And people keep sharing and pointing out the responses that are out there. But it's like Cam, I don't know if he even cares to recognize it or even care to interact with it. And I hope he does interact with it because if he's going to make a statement that honestly, the way that tries to sound, sound like he's ultimately, and I don't know if he means it or not, when he says a sound refutation of presuppositionalism, essentially what he is saying is, right, presuppositionalism is utterly destroyed. It is no more. It ceases to exist. It is wiped out of humanity by facts and logic, to quote uh, uh, Ben Shapiro. Um, so you have sort of that kind of, tone whenever you read something like that but that or or hear that title and i think it's interesting the fact that people have made several articles about that and that plus the statements he's made um they act like these things haven't been answered in the 90s and these people were writing and answering the kind of questions cameron and doc cameron is asking before cameron was even a youtube sensation before he was making articles. And so you have to wonder, and this is the other thing too, because James White was going to originally come on on there or have Cameron on. And I'm still waiting to see when that uh, podcast happens, but he asked him, Hey Cameron, have you ever read any material on presuppositional apologetics? And to Cameron's honesty, he said, no, I have not read a single uh, bit of literature on presuppositional apologetics. And that's usually how I can know if they, are representing it accurately. And it's unfortunate that because of his ignorance of this, the, the questions that have already been answered and of even the book that was written out called presuppositional apologetics stated and defended, which was uh, the last book uh, or one of the last books that Bonson wrote before he uh, passed away and was published after his death. Um, he tried to defend and establish why people need to use presuppositional apologetics and even clarified the schools of presuppositionalism. Cause that's a, a lot, not a lot of people get, you have um, the Vantillian approach. Then there was the divide between him and uh, uh, what, what was the name? Uh, Gordon Clark. Uh, if you'll ever look up Vantill, you'll usually come across the Vantill and Clark controversy because Clark was more like a very high rationalist. Like he said, God is logic and that since logic exists, God exists. And then he makes like all these kinds of things. And so that Van Til was sort of being atheistic in his reasoning or something like that. So like they had a big uh, back and forth between each other uh, during their time at Westminster Seminary. Um, 
And then you have an, a student of uh, Van Til, Francis Schaefer. Are you familiar with Francis Schaefer? Uh, I've heard the name. I haven't really dived into any of his work um, yet. He was mostly a social commentary guy, but he was an apologist uh, regardless. And he did engage in a method of presuppositional apologetics from his teacher, but he sort of shaped it much in the same way that uh, John Frame did and created his own. But Bonson had his own uh, problems with uh, Schaefer that he points out in his book. Um, so you have several different schools of presuppositional apologetics, and that's what people need to realize. It's not a monolithic thing. People have their own different ways of approaching the method because there's even people like today, like if you read Van Til, he's using the transcendental argument. You go to his student, K. Scott Oliphant, he doesn't believe the transcendental argument is uh, really needed or valid these days to use. Um, but there'll be people that'll disagree on that, and that's understandable. I mean, but ultimately, the fact of the matter is, unless one reads and realizes these distinctions or what the arguments are and the answers that have already been asked to the questions people are asking today, as if they are treating like that nothing's happened. It doesn't surprise me that whenever he starts making these videos saying sound refutation, people are going to automatically um, accept it. Um, they need to, because they're just going to see that video and think that that's it. They don't need to read anything else. But you do a dishonor to your own audience by leaving out certain information. And that's what I'm trying to do more with apologetics lately is to actually inform and correct misunderstandings about presuppositional apologetics because otherwise we're just going to get into some uh big problems that we shouldn't be diving into in the first place yeah um i know that when i first learned about presuppositional apologetics i mean i've always heard of it but i really started to after all the apologies march madness stuff i got really introduced to a bunch of guys in the precept um camp i guess you could say um and i was really I don't want to say surprised, but I was kind of like, I don't know the word, but I was just like really interested in how many different presuppositionalists are there. Not only is there a bunch of like really smart, intelligent people on a presuppositionalist side, um, there's also a lot of variety. Like I didn't realize there's like, I thought it was like you're a presuppositionalist or mm -hmm. you're not. And there's just like, it's just precept. It's this one group. There's, there's so many different like subdivisions. Like obviously I had Eli um, Ayala, on the show, he was talking with a classicalist. And I was trying to, as I was trying to find a classicalist, I was talking to someone and he's like, Eli would be, is a more, um, I don't wanna say liberal, but he's more of a softer precept than like some of the more harder precept, um, like more uh, conservative preceptors out there. So like, I don't know, can you talk a little bit about just kind of like the divisions in precept? Cause it's something that I never really knew about and it's something really interesting to me. Well, I can't necessarily come at too much on it because I'm still in the history of that. But I will say that there are people, like I said, there's K. Scott Oliphant who would disagree with using the transcendental argument for the existence of God. Um, and then you have people like Eli, Van Til, Bonson, and others who would use the transcendental argument. Um, and I'm not sure uh, Frame is the same way, um, but he does try to argue where is understandable if you're going to argue from a philosophical uh, approach since um, you know frame points out there is the issue of um, the intelligible intelligibility of uh, necessary or the necessary preconditions for intelligibility and that seems to work fine 
but of course as uh, frame notes and this is actually found i'm not sure if you have um this book uh, called the ivp dictionary of apologetics i do not oh and that one uh intervarsity press um uh dictionary of apologetics uh frank john frame has written several articles on there and one of them is on transcendental arguments where of course it takes root in Immanuel Kant, who sort of identify creates the first uh, one to respond to the skepticism of David Hume. And then eventually, uh, the problem that uh, Van Til saw was that it seemed that what Kant was doing was just arguing transcendentally for a generic theist God. And so Van Til tried to create the transcendental argument that is strictly and limited only to the Christian God. Um, and so that is that the only necessary presupposition, and here's the other thing too, a lot of people keep misunderstanding, is that word presupposition. Because, um, you know, people think, oh, you're supposing God, you don't prove or actually know he is existing. And here's the problem with that. Uh, and again, this is why people need to understand what Van Til meant. There's even <laughs> on frame-poithris.org, something called a quote, Van Til glossary. One of, uh, Van Til's own students made a glossary that defines what Van Til meant when he used words. And that's what's kind of funny when you think about it, because it's like, okay, you need a translator of uh, Van Til, and presupposition is a belief that precedes other beliefs and a belief that God governs other beliefs. So in other words, you may have your atheistic ideas or your naturalism, and that naturalism is a belief that's governing how then you have your other beliefs like your sense perception or, you know, accounting for logic or any sort of stuff. All of this um, has to be viewed uh, by some sort of presupposition that you have starting. And so for the atheist, they may have the naturalism or some other um, atheistic concept that governs their other beliefs. For the Christian, we have the Christian worldview, the Christian presupposition of the Christian God. And our belief in the Christian God, which is a justified true belief that we would have then about the knowledge of God, governs our other beliefs, such as how can we account for morality? How can we account for the laws of logic? How can we account for several things and several beliefs? All stems in that presupposition, in that belief that governs our other beliefs. And so the transcendental argument is trying to say that we all start with this presupposition and the only one that makes true sense and accountability is the argument of, for the Christian God that apart from the contrary, apart from the Christian God, you cannot account for logic. You cannot account for the necessary precondition for logic, the necessary precondition for intelligibility. It all starts there. And of course, according to uh, uh, John Frame, regarding the issue of Van Til, he said that if Van Til's approach is to succeed, however, it must abandon the assumption that tra traditional arguments are necessarily autonomous and welcome the assistance of such arguments to complete the transcendental argument, which was the problem, unfortunately, with uh, Van Til is that he would basically, like I said, he would take any other argument that was stemmed in um, the thoughts of uh, Catholics and Arminians and say that that automatically results in autonomous human ideas and autonomous philosophies are fallacious and illogical. 
And so as a result of that, he would try to not allow room for any sort of traditional arguments like the uh, cosmological argument or the teleological argument or the uh, any of these sort of classical arguments you're probably used to. Um, he would be against that and say it's only the transcendental argument. But, in, but according to Frame, um, basically he's not against the transcendental argument per se, but that the way that it is formulated from Bantil that we need to shape and re reframe get it because his, because his name is John Frame, reframe uh, the arguments so that way what you're dealing with is a argument for the more modern up-to-date. And in fact, you actually see this with other classical arguments. Like you have the cosmological argument, then you have the Lebanesian uh, cosmological argument. It was more laid out and according to Inspiring Philosophy actually logically answers uh, the questions we're looking for to point out for Christian theism at that point. Um, so you have uh, an interesting look at transcendental arguments, and then in terms of other disagreements uh, that may be happening is how then, uh, what exactly is being presupposed could be one thing that is uh, to be observed. Um, how does one go about the method or what is the main focus? Because that's the other thing. Like I said, some people talk about epistemology as the main thing. That was what Bonson seemed to be more focused on when engaging with it because he talked about worldviews and the antithesis. And then you see um, John, uh, John Frame being as literal. I even have a, uh, a video of him, a part of his uh, class that you can actually, if you want to listen to his uh, apologetics courses online, um, on I, uh, iTunes Academy. Uh, he has his apologetics uh, classes on there from Reformed Theological Seminary when he used to be a professor there. And he starts the whole thing off by talking about First Peter 3.15 and that you have to follow the whole thing word for word, literally, if you're going to start engaging in that, which includes, as I pointed out earlier, his favorite aspect was the Lordship of Christ because the Bible says in First Peter 3.15, in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy. So if you don't think Christ is holy and is Lord, then your apologetic is going to fail and not be consistent according to frame. And I can say that because I've met people who say they're presuppositionalists and they say, yeah, you know, I'm affirming this. But then the next thing you know, they have like terrible attitude problems. And an example of this, I'm not afraid to dox uh, this particular individual's uh, statements. Uh, Darth Dawkins is the more popular name he goes by he will go into it like i and he does usually the whole don't off offense only no defense and uh his attitude by cussing and acting very worldly seems to be the downfall and again disregarding regarding christ as lord and holy because if you view him as lord then he has sent out these decrees and you're viewing him as this thing, as this person to obey. And if we follow then the apostles, the apostles say, do not use profane language. Do not use filthy communication. Do not show worldly behavior. And unfortunately, some people will do that these days because they just want to use presuppositional apologetics because they think it gives them bonus points. And as Frame says, they might make you win the... Uh, some kind of uh, points and something, but it's not going to win souls to Christ. It's not going to win you any favor with God, who's just supposed to be your Lord, and he's supposed to be holy. Uh, so that way, because of that, you're ready to give 
at any time a defense to whoever asks you with a reason in you, and yet do it with gentleness and reverence. So he makes a point that it has to be all that essentially. And Oliphant sort of goes on this, but his is definitely more interested on the issue of lordship because we're talking about apologetics done in a covenantal sense. They were in the covenant of Christ. So let's defend and promote this covenant, um, this Christian covenant that we are in. And so you see some of these, some of these might not be as big, but if you really want to start seeing the differences, all you got to do, because I'm still trying to research this myself, um, and there's even a discussion about this on some videos and books that have been published about it. But just look up the Gordon Clark and the Cornelius Van Til controversy. And you will see that they then just disagreed on theological matters, which that seemed to be part of the issue as well. They also disagreed on apologetics and presuppositionalism. Gordon Clark was more of a uh, rationalist in his approach. Um, and Van Til just tried to be focused on as to put it in the words of K. Scott Oliphant, which he applies it greatly, um, Christian belief uh, or Christian theology applied to unbelief, essentially. That in the world of reason, in the world of reality, Christian worldview is applied 24-7 everywhere. There is no, we limit it to the church or to the seminary. It's take it everywhere you go and apply it in your philosophy, in your epistemology, in your daily life all right um all right so here's my last question unless someone wants to add something in the live chat here kind of a more uh fun question uh oh i like fun questions <laughs> but i hope you like this one um <laughs> let's say you're a matchmaker you can arrange any debate between a living presuppositionalist and a living classical apologist who are you choosing and then the same thing <laughs> with anyone who's dead and alive or alive Mm, mm, mm. So if I were to be able to re to arrange a debate between a classicalist and a presuppositionalist that is alive right now, yeah. um, hmm, that's a good one. Uh, the reason why is because there is immediately the person that comes to mind is John Frame, but he's retired, and I, you know, bless his heart, I don't know how long he's going to be able to handle on at this point because he has done, he's been around for quite some time and he has done so much uh work and blessings for the church with his uh material especially most of the apologetics in book format um but it would be interesting to see him in sort of a dialogue whether it be written or uh vocally um and if i were to choose him as the person because i kept saying this often to him i would say let's get john frame and cameron uh, from Caption Christianity because that was the name I kept bringing up often to him. Um, I mean, why don't you get some of these other philosophers like Frame if you're going to be talking about presuppositionalism? Um, so there's always that. But then in more of the more vocal, like if we were to set up an actual debate in sort of a uh, formal uh, vocal kind of style, I would say K. Scott Oliphant for the uh, presuppositional side. And then as for the uh, classical one, I would then have to say that goes to, because a lot of people would be, uh, actually, you know what? Let's go with uh, the one person who is usually viewed as that because William Lane Craig, um, for that matter, because you know he has made himself some objections against presuppositionalism. They've been addressed by James White over and over again. But I think if anyone is best at dealing with 
the objections raised by the uh, the critics, but any objections raised by the critics of presuppositionalism, it is by Van, is by uh, Oliphant, who, if you uh, look up the lecture called Understanding Cornelius Van Til that he gave, uh, he talked about during his time, he would write uh, questions directly to Van Til, and then eventually he would go and take walks with Cornelius Van Til and learn from him and what he meant. And so he got to know him during his last hours. And so if anyone's good at representing and explaining certain presuppositionalistic ideas and their roots, well, the best person to go to, in my opinion, for that would have to be K. Scott Oliphant. And if we're talking about a very well-known classical apologist, then we take that over to uh, uh, William Lane Craig, who is a philosopher. And I think the same applies for Oliphant. And the fact that he knew a well well-trained philosopher uh, named Cornelius Van Til. That's a fun one. Um, yeah, that'd be a lot of fun. How about oh, yeah. anyone, last thing here, and then we will be done. All right, let's include deceased people now. Um, any mm -hmm. two deceased people um, for, the, for this debate? Mm -mm. Uh, Pandora's box just opened. Well, this is going to be fun by there. Um, <laughs> So to, uh, would the dead uh, thing apply to the classical apologist as well? Correct, yeah. I would say at that point, uh, C.S. Lewis versus Greg Bonson. Mm. Um, that would certainly be a, a very entertaining one. Um, and then I would say for another, uh, for the other two, um, hmm, Cornelius Van Til and... Uh, because mm. that's the thing Bonson already debated Sproul but mentioned Sproul and Van Til um, going with each other because that was usually who Sproul was against and Sproul has passed away uh, as of late but if he were still alive and if there was an opportunity he could have to get him in a discussion with Van Til that would be the person I think would be worth seeing that conversation hmm be a lot of be a lot of fun. Hey, I oh, yeah. appreciate your time. Um, hey, no problem, man. I learned a lot. Um, any last thoughts you want to say before we wrap things up here? Just that uh, if anyone is you know looking to gain a knowledge on apologetics, especially on presuppositional apologetics, don't just observe secondary sources that are criticizing the thing. Like when I examine Mormonism, when I examine Islam, when I examine anything that is outside my ideas. I go to the primary sources of what the person is believing or what they affirm. So if I want to understand Islam, I don't just read um, the answering Islam website. I just decide to go to the Quran itself to see and test if even these claims are true and read that material for myself. Cause I may learn more than what's being promoted and talked about in uh, answering Islam. And then the same thing for, you know, James White's written books on Mormonism, but unless I read the Mormon book myself, I'm not going to gain this stuff. I'm not going to gain this knowledge or even test it to verify if this is actually true or consistent. And so likewise, I think if we're going to do apologetics and we're wanting to research our methodology, we should take a look into some of these other different things. And the ultimate thing that I think should come out of all this is that we shouldn't, and this is where I 
uh, kind of lean more with uh, John Frame um, on this because there's a uh, quote that he gave regarding the epistemological perspectives and uh, apologetics um, is that essentially what you have are people that are wanting to say, I am a classicalist. I am a uh, evidentialist or I am a presuppositionalist. And I think ultimately that, and this is of course me applying the uh, perspectivalist approach of apologetics uh, from John Frame is that quote, all three methods are biblically legitimate as long as neither seeks to claim ultimate priority to exclude or to exclude another as a complementary perspective. In the current debate over apologetics, we must recognize the claim of the presuppositionalists that knowledge is impossible without law and that ultimate and that the ultimate law is the scripture. We must also grant the claim of the evidentialists that the truth is found through the publicly observable events of nature and history. And we must grant the point made by many that no one will think rightly unless he is psychologically qualified to do so. There is much to be said here about the noetic effects of sin and the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Any of these approaches may be prominent in any particular apologetic encounter, but none will be successful unless the other approaches are also present implicitly. So that's why I ultimately say, don't identify yourself as a presuppositionalist. Don't just identify yourself as an evidentialist or a classicalist. Identify yourself as an apologist. In an apologetics uh, course that I have on my uh, YouTube channel in a five-part series, and it's available in a playlist as well, I tried to make the point that we need to ignore these names and ultimately focus on create, crafting your unique style and approach and stop trying to mirror and read off a script because that's what other apologists, honestly, back then were sick and tired of, of people just mimicking and copying their words and their ideas. You can take the what you have like the transcendental argument and be like frame where you reformulate the argument into something that's new. So do that with your apologetic method to shows that you have an interesting perspective that hasn't been seen, but more importantly, keep it rooted biblically. If the moment we have a secular or non-biblical approach in apologetics, then we aren't defending the Christian faith, but to, we are just merely promoting a general belief in God, which is a gamble and like playing Russian roulette with the path of going to heaven or hell at that point. So that would be my suggestion is to be biblically rooted and don't cling yourself to tiles. Be cling to an apologetic that is at least consistent with the Bible. And it's what makes your apologetic approach unique versus the apologetics of our ancestors. That's really good, man. Um, mm -hmm. I appreciate you coming on. This is the RC Apologist, the Reformed Christian Apologist. The links to his Twitter and his YouTube are in the description. If you don't know who he is already, I highly encourage you to check out his stuff, of course. Um, as for us, all of the links to our good stuff is in the description. We got our Patreon. We're like 34% funded. So if you could support like, hey, a dollar a month, much appreciated. But everything will be free and always free forever and ever. Um, all social media stuff, all that good stuff is in the description. So that's it. Thank you so much for coming on, man. I appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. All right. Have a great night, everyone.